Welcome to the final installment of the Breaking Bad series called Breaking Bad, All the Parts of a Great Mediation. The term to break bad is Southern American slang, meaning to turn from one's previously good behavior towards harmful acts. But we aren't considering what the term Breaking Bad means in the underworlds of places like Albuquerque, the setting for the Emmy award-winning show. Instead, the focus here is more literal, breaking down bad practices, behaviors, and mindsets that damage our relationships. Through roadmaps designed or developed for salvaging relationships and transforming our conflicts into prosperous and robust outcomes. You know, there's bad all over human history. There's bad in the news. There's bad in our communities. But if there's ever one collection that shows a lot of bad, it's the Bible. There's sibling shame, payback, family dysfunction and rivalry, envy of success, attempted mutiny, tribal mistrust, false claims, ethnic cleansing, prophets and kings clashing, young versus old disrespect, murderous hatred, and trouble over unmet needs. There's bad everywhere. You know, Jesus gave us the B attitudes, but if you were to uh, get the implied negative meaning of everything he said, if you don't have the B attitudes, is you have the bad attitudes. And I wrote them with that in mind, just inverting what he said. He said it so much more inspiring, obviously. But down goes the proud in spirit, for theirs are the momentary things. Down goes those who live it up now, for they won't be comforted. Down goes the control freaks, for they will lose what they have. Down goes the disinterested and what is right, for they will be empty. Down goes the unmerciful, for they will not be shown mercy. Down goes the impure of heart, for they will miss God. Down goes the troublers, for they will be without a place. And down goes the unrighteous that persecute, for theirs is the now moment. Down goes the insulters, persecutors, and pretentious people. One of the things that struck me was the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, all the way down through verse 11, actually are principles of conflict competence. And the inverted are those principles uh, that break down relationships and down society as a whole. The subject of mediation um, is not found in Scripture in one place. Sometimes there is an ambiguity in societies as to is there a difference between mediation and arbitration. And in the Old Testament, most times we're seeing arbitration where people will take a matter to a ruler or a wise one, a guide, an expert, and say, here's our situation, settle it for me. In the New Testament, you get much more of a sense that Paul as an apostle, sometimes being a mediator in the distance through writing, is wanting to help people settle their own disputes, but being that guide on the side, and he is more functioning like a mediator. The principles are very much similar throughout mediation and arbitration, the difference being that arbitration will ultimately lead to somebody making a ruling. The passage most thought about in the subject of mediation and arbitration in the Old Testament occurs early in the days of King Solomon. He was given a choice to ask for anything he wanted, and he asked for wisdom. 
And then he went on to be the wisest uh, figure of the Old Testament and giving us many proverbs and uh, wise writings. But this was the story that showed that he actually got the gift that he asked for. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night, took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that this wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, No, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. So they argued before the king. The king said, This one says, My son is alive and yours is dead, while the other one says, No, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword to the king, and he gave an order. Cut the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. The other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the baby, the living baby, to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw he had wisdom from God to administer justice. I love this story. And I like stories where things end well. I don't know about you. I just like good stories. About eight years ago, my wife and I were new to the downtown city ministry in Chicago, and we basically uh, came into a situation where we did not know what to do. And we had a team of about nine people that uh, would be to set up... Everyone loves a good story. I like good stories. Stories with great endings. And this was a great ending story in First Kings. But I think there are other kinds of stories with good endings that fall under the same topic. About eight years ago, my wife and I set up a team of nine people to handle disputes in our city ministry. It was a real mess at the time. That was very complicated history that we were sorting out and eventually did. But we had nine people that were going to help us with about 23 uh, unresolved disputes uh, that we had inherited, so to speak. Two disciples were eventually in an intense financial entanglement, which disintegrated and was headed to a dramatic outcome. One of them sought out a relative to sue the other. The other pursued uh, their local attorney. Both were geared up for battle. We showed them from the scriptures how wrong it is to bring such matters before the world when there are competent people in the church, and it is a lot less expensive. We proposed that they use our mediation team. They agreed and landed on the names of three mediators from that team that they both felt comfortable with. Every issue was brought out, which included possessions and bank accounts. In all, there was a two-hour meeting, some email, and a brief follow-up meeting. Every aspect of the process was amicable. And because the three mediators were volunteers, 
It did not cost them. We were mere observers for the process in every meeting, and I could say it ended as a good story. Good stories with good endings, we love them. One of the ways to see the stories of people's lives go good is to have God involved and to have godly principles involved and have godly people helping others out. Sometimes our best stories uh, on the subject of mediation actually come from the world. And sometimes they are mediation, sometimes arbitration. It's a fine line. The principles are very similar between the two, and that's why you'll find people uh, borrowing from mediation for arbitration and vice versa. Peacemaking, all of it is under the auspice of helping people through bridging uh, measures to come to an agreement and find resolution. Well, there's the one story that I think that's gotten uh, garnered a lot of attention in many books in my trade is the talks at Camp David back in 1978. Thirteen days at the camp between the 5th and 17th of that September, Carter had a relentless drive to achieve peace between Israel and Egypt. And in the end, he got Israel to agree to withdraw its armed forces from the Sinai Desert, evacuate its 4,500 civilian inhabitants, and restore it to Egypt in return for guarantees of freedom and passage through the Suez Canal and other nearby waterways. The stakes were oil fields, historical claims, military advantages, and civilian safety. And nobody thought it would be possible. There was a couple of ingredients that were turning points for this process. After three days, uh, Carter realized that he could not make any progress. He was only going backwards when he had everybody in the room at the same time. So he spent the last ten days caucusing with them in private, taking walks, rather than having them together hash this stuff out. And so, you know, having Camp David as a perfect environment for taking walks and having people having their own residence to, to contemplate without the fear of running into the other, uh, it worked out great. And uh, there was another thing that happened that really made this, uh, you know, helpful, is that uh, Begin was about ready to leave. He was really upset from the whole process. He was, said he would never allow the dismantling of the settlements. He was firm and decided to withdraw from the talks. And he was about ready to get on the plane. And so before leaving the camp, he asked Jimmy Carter to sign eight photographs for his eight grandchildren. Well, the photographs depicted him, Carter, and Sadat. Carter addressed his autographs personally to each begins grandchildren and took the pictures to him who was very touched and agreed to proceed with the negotiations. And then, ultimately, a settlement was found. What's interesting about that is we see a lot of pictures with all three men together. But the happy pictures of all three men together was when the process was being signed and ratified. And and then afterwards, and all three men received Nobel Peace Prize in time. And so that is an example of somebody being dogged about solving problems, being a mediator, being an arbitrator, a peacemaker, peace broker. And, you know, that's what Jesus called us to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the peacemakers. And, and Carter is one of the, uh, the most effective ones uh, living. So what we're going to do now is cover a mediation roadmap, which covers personal workout, ideal settings, opening session, exploring a singular cunt, conflict, or what do you do with reoccurring conflicts, 
and then realignment after conflicts, and then follow-up. A pre-mediation workout, that's where you're making sure that the parties are willing, are reflecting, and centering themselves prior to the mediation. It's really important to confirm willingness. I would tell somebody at this point to review my lesson, Feeling Bad, what are measures that we can do uh, to prepare ourselves to come into a conflict. Or if they can't do that, to read the Preparing for Mediation workbook that I've written for this kind of purpose, which has been very, very helpful for me in the past. It's only 10 pages. But people want to come in prepared. makes all the difference. There's a concept of handling bonsai uh, plants or trees uh, called Nimawashi. And it really means... uh, the cleansing in relationship between the plant and the soil and the plant to other plants. Sometimes you'll find a tree uh, with a disease. And there are dozens of varieties of diseases that can happen to the plant or to the soil or the interdependence uh, you know, affecting the whole uh, uh, array of these little plants all around them. So the Nimawashi part one is clean the tree really, really good. So if you've got an infected tree or an infected soil near a tree and you just want to make sure this thing has a chance to really thrive, you uh, carefully take it out of the soil, not breaking up the roots, and then you clean it really, really good. Uh, Japanese negotiators and mediators will use this illustration to prepare parties for going into uh, a mediation session so that they can uh, do a lot of self-examination beforehand. And then next, let's talk about ideal settings. That's helping the parties experience safe harbor. Okay, We want them to be able to come into a meeting and not be afraid of what they're going to encounter when they get there. So where is the meeting? That can be important. Who's in the room? That can be important. Making sure that there's no surprises, uh, that somebody feels there's an advocate in their room, and the room for them. Um, I think an ideal setting for a really intense, uh, costly conflict to make sure it gets handled well is you have more than one people on the person on the mediation team. Then you have the parties, and then the most impacted people of that party, maybe it could be a spouse or another worker, And then you have people that are considered advocates for all, either advocates for each of the parties, separate ones, or a person or persons that are considered advocates for everybody. And their purpose, an advocate, would be to help people bring out their very best. And so, but there should be no surprises. And by the way, the philosophy of who's in a room and where the seating is will vary from mediator to mediator. But the goal is, is to have assurance when people are there. We want to clarify their roles and what the agenda of the meeting is, seating arrangement, refreshments, even there being light humor is okay, uh, quiet music before it gets started, you know, calming music, a prayerful uh, opening that also conveys hope, and uh, that's really what you want. The first session is so important. Now, this is this is my uh, little uh, contribution to this field. I experienced the power of a first session, and I'm going to give you the story in a bit. But I call this building a meaningful dialogue. And the very first session, you take off all expectations that the problem is going to be solved in that first session. And you, that helps the anxiety dissipate. 
we're here to really give ourselves the best shot in this first meeting to an understanding as what has happened and um, but do not feel the pressure to solve this all today. Now I say that to people and I feel like I'm being I'm tricking them a bit, okay? By lowering their expectations, there's a really good chance that they're going to be calm and traction will take place that they will ultimately solve this problem, their predicament, even in the first session. And so I, I, I don't feel deceitful, but I do feel shrewd when I tell people, we're probably not going to solve it today, but uh, we're going to get some good things done. So how you do this, you say, when did you first meet? Tell me about the good times and your common interests. What are the strengths or the things you value in the other party? And then you eventually got to get to where there previous conflicts. When did you first sense that there was a problem? What do you see now that you didn't see back then? Now, this prologue is getting closer and closer to the actual situation of the conflict. But what you've done first is you've helped them remember a better time. And you, as a mediator, are helping see a story. Back in the... uh, year 2007 a friend of mine from Asia and I were asked to go to a church in Europe to help out with the conflict that was four years long in the year 2003 a satellite ministry of a larger church uh, all the church was in a kind of a firestorm but this particular one uh, was probably the worst hit and it led to a uh, public discipline and rebuke of the oldest shepherding figure in that ministry. And it was a almost like a coup d'etat thing that happened. It was a shocking, shocking story, so shocking that the ministry went from about 3.30 or so to about 1.30 in just a couple of years, and most of that was in directly relation to painful events that people didn't want to forget. Well, the larger congregation was connected to the individual who was rebuked, and they rejected, many of the other groups rejected the outcome of the group that we're talking about. So, I had no knowledge of the people or the parties, didn't know hardly anybody. had come to this church a few times through traveling, but didn't have any history. And the other mediator that came with me knew everybody in the room really, really well. All I did in my contribution to this positive outcome was develop the prologue. I asked the questions. When did you first meet? Tell me about the good times and so forth. And we're moving along and going very, very slow. And somebody brought brand new information into this group that virtually nobody had. And that somebody was the other mediator. And he provided this information that was a game changer. And when you could see the faces of the people all of a sudden soften in their resistance to the other party end, it was it was like scales fell off people's eyes. And it was a fascinating development because after we built this prologue and I said, what do you now see differently than you did back then what would you have done differently there was all sorts of information that was coming out of these men 
and it was just a wonderful experience. We really believed that 90% of our work was over at that point. And my fellow mediator was going to be in town for quite a few more weeks, and he finished the last 10% of the work. What happened in closure of this story is they had a church service where all the parties, the major parties that were involved in this conflict, gave communion out to the church after telling the story, asking for forgiveness from each other and to the extended families affected by the conflict. They even invited people out to church that had uh, left when it all blew up and had a very meaningful outcome. And it's interesting that today at this moment, uh, the two most conflicted parties in that conflict back from uh, 2003 to seven that's still in the church one works for the other and uh, in, in their career professionally. So it really was resolved in a meaningful way. But it happened in the prologue. Largely, the work was done in the prologue. Okay, so not all conflicts go that way. So we're going to talk now about exploring a singular conflict as a tree. But before we go any further, I just want to read some verses. The power of these verses that I'm going to read is to tune you as a potential mediator. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. You, whether you're a man or a woman, are to be a person of understanding. And you have to realize that a big part of mediation work is drawing out the things that are in deep waters, those elements of what motivates us and what drives us, what our longings and, and aspirations are, that affect uh, our relationships and be willing to try to ask the questions to draw them out. And we'll see that in just a little bit. Proverbs 18, 17 and 20 verse 5 say exactly the same thing. The first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. And that's also important. A piece of a story isn't the story. And sometimes the presenting story is not the story, even when both sides are telling it together. I've seen um, people, and this is almost a rule of thumb in this field, that the presenting story, even if both parties in a two-party conflict are telling the same story, will not be the story. Because sometimes what they're fighting about is one thing, but really they're fighting out something else and using... uh, one situation to fight out issues from another situation. So sometimes people are having conflicts about things that they don't even know why they're conflicting about it, and they're even quite confused themselves. So just don't put too much credence into a piece of a story. Make sure you found a way to harmonize things, and then you have to be the interpreter. Proverbs 18.19 An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city, and disputes are like barred gates of a citadel. I've seen uh, people be combative and unreasonable and over-the-top and emotional and contaminate the environment by their emotional field. And no matter how gentle or wise or any, you can be as a mediator, uh, these, person, these individuals can contaminate uh, any kind of a conflict, no matter how many parties are involved. So sometimes we have to deal with an individual off on the side. We're also... We might actually have to give, take away their options, and they will be the loser in a conflict if they can't come to the table and play like a nice person. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 23, The Lord detests differing weights, and dishonest scales do not please him. 
We should not approach a mediation with favoritism, being jaded. Uh, we may have an opinion. We should have opinions. But we should be not partial to the parties. It's not our conflict that we're navigating or mediating. It's somebody else's. So we're not trying to settle our issues in somebody else's mediation. We want to keep the scales and the weights uh, uh, unimpeded. Proverbs 21.15 When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. And not all conflicts result in like justice where one side is right and one side is wrong. Although some of them do in this proverb comes into play pretty strong Proverbs 17.9 he who covers an offense promotes love but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends how we talk about a conflict is really really important and um, I think it's good to talk about a conflict with vague out of focus terminology and uh, never to lean with the outcome uh, of a conflict before things have played out and um Proverbs twenty one twenty eight: a false witness will perish and whoever listens to him will be destroyed forever. There are a lot of really clear passages about the, the rules bound on a witness. One story from one witness has almost no value. Two or more witnesses are usually what's called for. And if a witness is found to be corrupt or lying, they may suffer the outcome of the uh, what a litigation would have been for a the accused person. So um, there should be an integrity about what a witness is, and the pressure should be on the community to make sure that uh, somebody's going to be a witness, they better be telling the truth, and it should be able to be corroborated. That is the goal. So anyway, now let's go on to the conflict tree. The goal is to bring to find understanding, and that's usually in the branches of a tree. The metaphor will be seen here in a moment. And then ownership, negotiating the past, the present, and the future of the relationship. We'll cover that in a moment. Understanding that single conflict story, it should be seen as dividing up the story from the interests. The elements of a story, prologue, which we talked about before, um, the... Uh, factors, which is uh, boundaries, relationship history, identity, values, and constraints, and of course the situation itself. Okay, so I'll cover those in a second. And then the interests are the veiled things that drive the conflict. These are usually not as openly talked about. Somebody's desire for a great future or the pursuit of position, or respect, or honor, Uh, their hopes, hopes deferred, all those things are kind of emotional to talk about. So they're not usually covered in conflict very well when people are fighting because people keep this information close to the chest. So where conflicts are being fought over are these five things, boundaries. A boundary would be like a rule, a decorum, established standard or protocol that a family or a church organization has. So if somebody's broken a boundary, that's what the focus becomes. Or if there's relationship history, you're always over the top, you're always emotional. Uh, that's relationship issues. And that is a distraction from reality, by the way. 
it needs to be addressed within the resolution of an overall conflict. But these things become very tangential. Um, identity. That's race, gender, ethnicity, somebody's religion. And um, that may be a factor in a conflict. Uh, values, somebody's belief system, their culture, things that mean a lot to them, their personal currencies. Um, that can be where people can have a conflict. Or a constraint. A constraint would be a lack of resources. It's something that's unfixable, really. Uh, if the resources aren't there, they aren't there. And then it's a fight over the resources. Another unfixable thing that could be in conflict would be somebody's mental health or physical health or state of being after trauma. Uh, so if somebody is deeply moody after a loss of a loved one, that's a constraint. That's an unchangeable. It may have factored into the a conflict that occurred. But it's not something you just say, well, change your mood. <laughs> so these are where the conflicts are fought. Boundaries, relationship history, identity, values, and constraints. And those form a story. But somewhere in the discussion of a story where you're able to piece what has happened, all these factors as branches, is things that become emotional. And when you talk about the conflict situation itself, you will find emotions that tell you there's something else going on. And those emotions are protecting the true interests. So if somebody's emotional in conflict, I may say, well, tell me what's important to you here. And you will not be interrupted. What outcome would you like to see? Or what are some possible outcomes that you would be able to work with? And... Um, Some of the things you can do is, as a mediator, you can reassure process. The process will make sure that an impartiality will be honored and clarity will be achieved and understanding will occur. And when you recognize emotions without minimizing them and you talk process and discuss outcomes, what happens is the interest will emerge and people will say, well, I hoped that I was going to have this and I've always wanted that. And I didn't like how I was treated. Four out of five times, people will accept a undesired outcome of a conflict if they felt like the process was fair. Process means everything. Because when the process is fair, they will believe that they can talk about their interests and they really want their interests to be heard. And often it's respect. So if people didn't get the outcome that they wanted, which may be a position or a raise or whatever, but if they got respect, then that may be all that they needed, a change of respect. First Peter chapter 2 is a verse that says, Respect everyone. Respect is a huge driver in conflict. And especially in church-based uh, setting, church settings, um, Respect is a big deal. So the one thing I would say is is every church culture should make sure that process and respect are major currencies to minimizing unnecessary conflict. Okay, let's move on. Ownership. Once the story's been talked out and these drivers, these interests have been put on the table, we've gone below the line and we've got to them, people will have be able to start to go, you know what, I wish I would have done this differently. Especially in a faith-based community where people have integrity and they're reasonably healthy people, they'll start to say, I wish I would have handled this differently. 
and they'll offer a bridge of, I don't think I did this wrong, but I do think I did that wrong. And to that extent, I am sorry. What can I do to make it right? And forgiveness will start to be exchanged. And that's what we can do about what happened in the past. And we need to negotiate finding that bandwidth that both parties can agree with about what happened in the past. And then we talk about the present. How many people have learned of this conflict? And what changes can we put in place to rectify the damages of the conflict? So we call this correctives and disclosure. And, you know, how many people do we inform of the outcome? Who, what, when, where, how, and how much? This is tricky stuff that really requires a third party. That's why mediators, mediations are needed in churches because these are tough questions to answer. If somebody's name has been slandered in the church because of a conflict, uh, we have to figure out how far to go with bringing closure. And in the age of the media and the Internet and all this kind of stuff, it becomes trickier. The future. Does restitution need to take place? Uh, what would we do different? In, you know, Can we close the matter by writing up a summary of this? And a summary doesn't need to divulge names necessarily. It could be a story with the takeaway lessons to make sure it doesn't happen again. And actually, my experience is this is meaningful. It can actually be kind of fun because by this time, if you really have got to the drivers, it got things out of the table, and the people are able to start showing respect and listening to each other. Uh, the parties usually do want to get to a new chapter where this is behind them. And so this is a way to start building some trust in their bank account. I want to talk about exploring reoccurring conflicts. We use a weed in this case. The bugle weed looks a little bit like a tree. It has a real solid trunk like a tree trunk. And we will use it as a metaphor to finding the source of a protracted dysfunction. Okay, so if there's a conflict that takes place, and I had one matter that I was handling that was seven years of many conflicts, I was brought in to address one conflict that was so insignificant all by itself, but it was so emotionally laden because it was the end of a story of many, many conflicts. I think there were seven or eight over that seven or eight year period or six or seven year period. And so I said to them, what was the first conflict and how many were there and how long? What are the early developments that affected events affect these developments? What was the trunk, you know, conflict, the bugle? What was the original one? And you have to ask that question more than once because the parties might answer it differently. Are there other conflicts the uh, other conflicts just extensions of an earlier one what is or are the most important one or ones to sort out now here's what we'll typically we'll find out is that there was that one that never got sorted out quite right back in the beginning so it played out in many other personal actions and issues later on and added uh, emotions and residue to things that should have been easily navigated but they weren't navigated well because the first one was still playing out. And then you find out that the latest conflict is important because that's where the emotions are. But the first one, they both will agree that we need to go all the way back and talk about that. In my experience, people want to talk about the first one and the last one. The great thing about this is you don't have to talk about all of them. Nobody wants to talk about all of them because they recognize that we have a weed, not a tree. We have reoccurring 
conflict that's originating in a first conflict, and they want better help sorting that out. And then the latest one, just because it's so fresh, we want to make sure we, we cover it. It's possible to test the other conflicts just to say, hey, do you want to talk about these? Just to make sure we've resolved them, but typically you won't need to do that. Okay. After everything is done, it's time to talk about realignment. Realignment is adjusting the roles, responsibilities, and processes for a more robust culture. This is in a church setting, but it can be workplace. If serious conflicts have occurred, what changes environmentally do we need to make to help ourselves to make sure that they don't occur again? Sometimes there are things in our setting, our culture, our systems that provoke conflict. Sometimes by emphasizing certain values over others, uh, we're creating conflict. So anyway, how do we adjust roles, responsibilities, and processes? I'm going to come back to Nima Washi Part 2. Not only do they focus in the Japanese culture with the bonsai tree and cleaning the tree really, really, really good, They'll do two more things. They'll clean the soil the best they can. They'll inspect it or replace the soil if they find a fungus or infection. But often they'll make sure they don't plant the tree exactly where it was before. And the thinking is there. You may be missing something. You maybe didn't catch something. And so it's good to make just enough adjustment to help further a fresh start. So I encourage there to be changes in the environment always, even if a conflict seems to be resolved perfectly, nudging the culture, nudging the system so people don't fall back into earlier ruts that they were so habitual about. So sometimes it might be by redefining the roles, getting more clarity than before in uh, periodic assessments, uh, processes, talking about the, here's how we're going to do things, um, You may change the players, getting the right people on the right place on the ship. And that sometimes conflicts happen because people are in a role that they're not suited for. And they're not allowed or empowered to do the things they're good at. So finding ways to address those things. Uh, Rehearsing the future through what ifs. If something came up, how would we handle it? What would we do different than we did before? And installing fail-safes so that if two people all of a sudden escalate into conflict, uh, they will know, here's somebody to call to keep this from doing carnage. And in my work, I see no fail-safes out there in churches. None whatsoever. They'll call them elderships, but the elderships often function like HR, where they do have a bias, and they're not uh, trained to, to be differentiated from that bias. And so it's okay to have HR and it's okay to have elders that are looking out to even protect the leaders sometimes. But there has to be a mechanism so that the leaders are not given an advantage if they find themselves in a conflict with somebody. So there's some questions about processes to make sure that people have a safe way to have a grievance heard and held the leaders of a congregation accountable and even getting outside help from that congregation. I don't see enough fail-safes out there. I don't see training or rehearsing what-ifs, and I don't see enough emphasis on the processes. Uh, And this is not indicative of my affiliation. It's just out there in churchianity as well. So the idea is to basically get synced up so that we are in our best place to perform 
God's uh, decrees. Some of the, the passages that I would call people to for alignment, it would be 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. And those passages cover mission, vision, values of a church. And those passages cover validating, accepting, and interdependence and needing each other. And they also including, include finding out who you are, what you're good at, what you ought to be doing, and making sure you're doing it. And those are the same principles that are applied to healthy organizations and to churches, although the terminology will vary. Lastly, follow-up. Establishing measures to monitor progress. Follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. When people just know that there's going to be follow-up, they're on better behavior. When they know that a visit or a phone call or a meeting or, uh, you know, some sort of mechanisms in place, it will help us. Culture is powerful. We have natures that lean into certain directions, and uh, we like to solve things throughout of our flesh. And process and accountability will help us out. And so follow-up, follow-up, follow-up is so important. And that means making sincere plans and obvious efforts that can be accounted for and be scheduled and get that mediator back in at a later time and pay them well for it, too. (laughs) Okay, let us be about breaking bad practices, behaviors, and mindsets in our next family, church, or workplace squabble. I love this slide up here. You have one polar bear watching the others fight. The point mediator polar bear coaching them, and then we see a final outcome. Two polar bears shaking hands. Problem solved. Thank you very much.